Hello, and welcome back to Champions of Security. Today, we'll be discussing what zero trust means for applications with two incredible guests. First, we have Amanda Alvarez, who's a DevSecOps architect consultant at Trace3 with a passion for helping people learn more about software security. She's a highly motivated practitioner who enjoys creating developer-oriented solutions with an emphasis on increasing effective feedback loops to help companies balance agility with security. Her mission is to spread awareness on scalable and sustainable software security programs so that people and their data remain protected from evolving threats. Outside of continuously learning more about security, she enjoys gardening and hiking the mountains of Colorado. The other guest is Brooke Schoenfield, who's authored six security books, taught hundreds of security architects, and thousands have attended his threat modeling trainings. He was the technical lead for five software security programs and four consulting practices. Brooke's currently the CTO of Resilient Software Security, and he's also True Positive's Chief Software Security Strategist. He helps organizations and technical leaders improve their software security practices. He also teaches at the University of Montana. Amanda, Brooke, thank you so much for joining today. I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having us. I love course. So. Perfect. So today we're going to talk about what does zero trust mean for applications? And to make sure that everyone listening is on the same page, one thing we need to do is lay the groundwork and figure out what is zero trust and where did it come from? That'll really guide the rest of the conversation about where it is today and where it's going. And and Brooke, uh, if I can pass the torch to you, I think you've probably had the most experience out of anyone here with this. Can you help us understand where did zero trust come from and why does it matter? Well, you know, there is history here. People have been talking about, in fact, I think it's in Salser and Schrader's 1976 design principles. So really old. I'd have to go look, but I'm pretty sure there's something about trust and, and, and gaining it rather than assuming it in there. Um, I, I do know years ago uh, when I did message security at Cisco, I, w I was the lead for that. Um, Microsoft came out with this series of of principles to design to for for you know inter inter uh, application. We would say today that's not what they said, but inter application um, uh, uh, interchange. And they said uh, mutual assume mutual distrust. Now that's not quite the same as zero trust, but but you can see where it's going. That was 2003, by the way. So that was kind of my real entree into starting to think about this problem in, a, in, a, in, in that way. Actually not, because we'd done some work around that. Me and Michelle Gell and Steve Atchison and Steve Wright and Sergey Rusikov at Cisco a couple of years earlier around this. Um, and that paper is lost to the, to the universe. But you can see that a lot of these ideas have been happening for a long time around we, we're, we're, we're just, we keep talking about trust, but how do you get trust and where do you start? And so I think the zero trust, and I, I don't have the exact definition of the person who actually coined the term, which I think was around 2010 or 2011, and I don't remember the person's name, so I'm sorry about that. I should have done my research um, and schooled up, but I didn't. Um, that that term now embodies really the most important part of this is 
really just because you wrote some interchange and exchange between a couple of components or applications or parts of your of your app inside or between apps or a big integration, don't assume it's okay. Really, that's what zero trust means. And we, we take that and we move it out to users. Don't assume trust of users until you prove and then, you know, only give them what they want. That's been there for since Schrader and Salzer. Um, you know, but uh, the idea that we, we, we we're really too trusting when we design software and we really have to limit. And in the application space, to bring it right back to applications and AppSec, don't just simply don't assume that users are okay, that authentication takes care of it, and that applications are okay, even though we wrote both parts, because attackers take over applications all the time. Is that, you know, Amanda? Yeah, reminds me of. Yeah, no, that, that resonates with Spider <laughs> That really resonates with uh, some of the practices I've been seeing as part of like my own experiences and different engagements with a bunch of different clients. And the concept of, you know, never trust anything, but always verify, right? Like, I feel like that kind of embodies some of the core uh, security mindsets of like, you know, I don't really trust what's going on here, but but prove to me that you are who you say you are, and and you know we can start making things happen. Um, and and to that, there's so much more to applications than just the code that you write it. There's so many different components. Now, when we think about zero trust, it really goes from the data that goes into it, the identity, the devices that connect to it, your networking and infrastructure. All of these different pieces come together and really make up you know, this framework that we're now moving towards and being more cognizant of like, oh, wow, there's actually more to our business than just an application. We have all these components. We have all these services. We have all these third parties. Wow, I think I just got into software supply tape. That could be a whole other topic. <laughs> but they're, they're all related in, in what zero trust means at the end of the day for an application. And so if we, you know, zero trust, my understanding of how the industry looks at it, is it's largely the actual, you know, the devices that you're using, right? Like zero, they say zero trust is not a product, but all of the zero trust products are are connections between devices, right? It's it's how are these devices talking to each other and assume the devices are compromised. Uh, and, and so if we talk about zero trust for applications, as we segue into that, you know, at how granular do we have to be with what could be compromised? Like at where Where are you installing checkpoints to say, to your point, Amanda, prove to me you are who you say you are. You know, does it need to be, like, I, I'll stop there. Where where, do, where would you put those checks? Oh my goodness. Let's start uh, with Amanda. That's where my, my favorite term of like, <laughs> uh, it, it, that's where your defense in depth comes into play, right? Uh, you have the traditional sense of security of just protect the, the, the edge, right? Everything outside this perimeter-based concept should be considered secure on the inside. But zero trust takes it a step further. Um, you know, pretend there is no perimeter. Once you're inside, then what? What happens is if, you know, the checkpoint that you had on the furthermost point that you can check is compromised? Well, then the keys to the kingdom are wide open. And that level of thinking just really takes uh, your, your AppSec program to, to the next level, right? 
in the event something happens, how can I quickly identify that and respond to it and, and really put those checkpoints in place so that in the event something happens, I know who to go to, I've contained the, the blast radius of the threat, and I know what I need to do to mitigate it and potentially prevent it in the future. But you really have to have multiple checkpoints. So I know I've experienced some developers saying, oh no, why do I have to have all these different tools in my pipeline? And for a pipeline, that's, that's just an automated way of running your security scans and your tools and you know how you build your applications. But when you have all of these multiple tools, sometimes they overlap in capabilities, right? Your custom code scanner may overlap with some of your uh, container scans because you, you are writing some source code that will run at some point. And, and the overlap of roles and responsibilities between a developer, a security person, or even operations, right? It's all blending. So, so putting those checkpoints in place will help developers, help security teams and operations teams really come together and, and build that visibility that's really needed in order to find and, and fix up these issues before they become an issue later. And then assuming something has happened because there is no such thing as 100% perfect code, anyone who says that should just open up their phone and look at the latest headline of the day, right? There are tons of zero days being uh, discovered because we're, we have more tools and technologies to find it which I think is great. But then there's also the noise issue, which is a whole other problem. But you do need to have you know, more data and have a data-driven mindset to really prioritize all of these issues that you're... So it really does depend on you know what you're building, what your use cases are for some of these technologies that you need to put into your, um, into your workflow. But it really does uh, encompass many, many tech checklists from planning to development to... You know, running in production, there, there's always more to find. You have to really be targeted in how you approach all of that. Can I? Uh, call can, I to you. can I? Can I? Yeah. Can I put some some specific on this as an example? Uh, take authentication. This is a basic control, and most people who develop software get it, and most users expect that when they go to something, you're going to identify them in order so that they can look at their account or change their account or or work in their social media and it won't be someone else. This is pretty basic. At the same time, I find that developers often think it's much better than it is. Consider something like a social media site that gives away accounts for free. Attackers can't get an account Come on. Attackers routinely create thousands of Gmail accounts at a time that they can manipulate. So what does authentication do for you in that case? It ties bad behavior to an entity so you can pull it as soon as you see the bad behavior. It doesn't really give you any real protection. Now, there are different cases, all going all the way to, say, a nation-state spy agency who who you know, spend a lot of time vetting their people before they give them authentication. You know, they, they know that Brooke is Brooke if Brooke has that kind of clearance, but I don't. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really, there are very, various levels, but in the standard app, even one B2B, you still have to assume that some population of your users are gonna be compromised and an attacker's riding along and what's to say a well-funded attacker can't just buy your service if it's cheap enough 
and the ROI is, is good enough, okay? So here we have attackers that are authenticated and authorized to do things. So that's not really gonna help us prevent. So now going to Amanda's point, we need additional zero trust around what we're receiving from the customer. And that's that defense in depth. So I wanted to give an example of what we mean when we say a defensive depth. And of course, there's a lot more examples. Amanda, you gave a, a bunch, but, but let's just take this. Now I've got to say, okay, I've got attackers who are authorized and authenticated. Can I trust any data I get? No, I should not trust any data I get. And I should check to see that it's the data I expect to get and nothing else. You know, escaping inputs to try and prevent cross-site scripting or 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 checking range and 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 type and whatever you can do schema if you're receiving xml you know all of these things are all pieces of a puzzle of a defense in depth that lead up to zero trust rather than just saying okay i authenticated the system i got to assume the system might someday be compromised because all software fails including security software therefore I'm going to assume it's going to fail. And how do I protect myself from its failure? To your point, Amanda, lower the blast radius, reduce the blast radius, even if I do get compromised, so that it doesn't, you know, take me down and I can survive it. And I'll give an example. This is before clouds, by the way. And we were trying to invent virtual environments at Cisco because we didn't have the kind of virtualization technology we have today back in 2001, 2002, 2003. So we were using Java virtual machines and we had hundreds of them, thousands of them, all running on servers, but they had such reduced rights on those servers that even when we did have a compromise, the blast radius was exceedingly small and we could just pull that virtual machine or if it, there were three of them running for, for horizontal scaling, we could pull them all and say, okay, gotta do something without actually hurting the whole thing. That's reducing the blast radius. So I hope I put some, some serious um, specifics to what we're talking about and how you do these things. It really is from the edge all the way to the consumption of and processing of data. So but I think wanna... I, wanna, I wanna add on to that where when, when you think about how to actually achieve zero trust, think about your your application or your system or service as though it's it's a, a product that you care about the quality of, right? In the event that there is a security incidence, right? How does that impact your business? And, and really working from that perspective really helps have the conversation internally with your organization or, you know, your, your other peers in the space of how to actually achieve zero trust. You have to build these quality checks and plates and, and verification systems in order to really achieve zero trust, right? What's the threat I'm trying to protect against? Have I put all these controls and mitigations in place? And, you know, what's the likelihood of a breach with everything that I put into place? And it's this continuous exercise, right? Really aligns to what I feel like the DevSecOps principles of, of you know, automate everything, verify everything, but also, you know, create processes where your people are empowered and enabled to do the right thing at the right point in time, right? Because zero, zero trust is is a can of a million words because of the amount of technical debt we've recruited over time with all of the different components that make up an application, for example. I won't even go into the specifics of, you know, networking or devices or, or anything like that. Like the shift from, uh, you know, office culture to remote work, 
propelled us, you know, years into uh, this technological advancement in just two years. And so the amount of like rework we have to go into uh, redesigning or re-architecting our ecosystems, both internally for the organization and externally to the products being developed, right? There's a shift everywhere in, in how people are perceiving these uh, security checkpoints to, you know, prevent issues, but also be able to detect issues and be able to respond to them in a, an appropriate amount of time. So one thing that I think is really important to talk about with locking things down, detecting issues and responding is the, the introduction of multi-factor authentication, not the, and bringing that into apps. And so one thing, one specific example that I feel like aligns with this zero trust principle we're talking about is on a stock trading app that I use, when you log in, right, it authenticates you, it's two-factor authentication. But then if you want to buy or sell anything, they make you redo your your multi-factor authentication before you can buy or sell anything. And so it's really fascinating because they check over and over again. And I personally, as a user, I really like it. I could see some people being frustrated. Um, but that type of thinking makes me feel more confident using the platform. The fact that they're like, hey, we're going to double check who you are. We're going to make sure it's still you. And then if you, um, if I have a VPN going on one device and not on another device, sometimes it'll be like, you know, it'll be like, hey, you're logging in from a weird location and it'll prompt me again. And so I think that whole, to your point about detecting and responding appropriately, right, all these things that are becoming more commonplace uh, are, are really important. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there, but do you think outside of multi-factor authentication, right, do you have other examples of specific things people need to be implementing to verify that there's no lateral movement inside of applications? Okay. Can I, can I share an example before you, you share some of your example, Brooks? Because one of the things I, I think about all the time is like super top of mind. Um, so IoT devices, <laughs> another can of worms, um, are traditionally shipped insecure by def by defaults as in it's on the end user to go into the product into the application and harden it with the appropriate amount of um credentials so that it's not uh so easily exploitable with the default credentials that are typically shipped and so as a result of that like there are networks out there that are just collecting all of this data from IoT devices. And that is a, a big example where I wish they were secure by design and by default from the starts. As in, the first time a user, you know, opens up their product, they should be prompted to change the password and set it with the complexity of this and also enable MFA while they're at it, right? Encourage these secure practices uh, where possible so that the end user doesn't need to think about it or react to it once an event happens. That's my two cents. I'm glad I did it. You force them to make it secure the very first time. You don't make it an option. It's not like, hey, at your convenience. It's like, this will not work until you make sure that it's locked down. Right. I mean, we do that with an operating system, right? When you install a modern operating system today, it doesn't say... Um, and the password is is password one, two, three, and then you could get to leave it. It says, set my password when you install it, right? Or I'm going to migrate you from some other password and I'm going to do that securely. 
that's all part of the way we install operating systems today. Um, just, just as an example of where this works and works really well, um, you can still put in password one, two, three, but you know, you shouldn't. Uh, and I, you know, that's, that's a great example. I want to, I want to say there's some enabling technologies today because so much of what we do, we've been talking about devices and that's one can of worms, as you say, Amanda, think about so much software gets run in a cloud today. I will say the major clouds do this almost seamlessly and amazingly inter inter application um, protection or, or, or isolation in terms of, you know, only this application can talk to this application and they use really good authentication methods like certificates between them. And all of that's kind of seamless and behind the, 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 I don't know the mechanism exactly in GCP that is Google, the Google cloud, but I do know them in AWS and Azure. And I can tell you they're really easy. And yet application after application that I actually threat model are not using them. So there are services here that are readily available and they come with your native subscription. So I want to put in a little, a little, um, uh, commercial, if you will, or advert for people to say, hey, application writers, if you're listening to this, go use the native services that protect your applications and make them only talk to each other in the way you intend and stop lateral movement. That doesn't stop movement through your applications. Again, you got to have a defense in depth as we've been talking, but it certainly will kill opportunities for lateral movements that are unintended because only application A is prevented from talking to anything except application B because you set it up that way. Use those native services. I want to say that the zero trust that we were talking about in 2010, where it was really hard and you had to build all this stuff by hand, and you hoped that your TLS uh, bidirectional authentication was taking care of it and that each application was validating the certificate properly, and checking so that it was actually the certificate you expect and you were pinning certificates, which means changing them was really difficult. This was the world of 2010, right? It was quite difficult to do zero trust. Today, in a cloud, most of the clouds, it's trivial. It's point and click. I've got these three virtual machines or these three containers, and they should only be talking to each other in this manner. One reads, one writes, one processes, one talks to the database. Um, so uh, set that up. There's these systems that are right there in the cloud that'll do this for you. And you don't have to think about it. All you have to do is point and click. They've already thought about how the services should do it. They have key managers. They have you know, things that duplicate the functionality in software of a hardware a uh, security manager that is an HSM that protects uh, secrets and credentials. They have all this stuff thought. It's the kit's right there. Use it. Brooke, do you know off the top of your head specific service names in AWS people should look out for? For anyone that's listening that would want to know and you know what to explore further? I think it's called, you know, I'm probably going to mangle this and tell you the Azure one and then switch them up. Because I always have to go look, but I think it's okay. called IAM in AWS, Identity Access Manager. 
and I think it's called something else, but it's of course it's based on on Azure Active Directory, you know, underneath the covers somewhere um, in in uh, in uh, or or maybe it's IAM and Azure. I really get them mixed up. I'm very sorry. Um, I again, I'd have to go and look. <laughs> you know, I get one customer who's on one cloud. I get another customer that's on another cloud, and I go and I figure it out again and say, oh yeah, that's how it works. It's point and click. That's the important thing. By the way, setting up networks, remember Amanda was talking about networks a few minutes ago? With software networks in a cloud, you can set up subnets, again, point and click. You don't have to have an entire army like we had at Cisco of network, you know, certified um, network architects to set this up and manage it. You can just, because somebody's already done that, you can just go, I want a subnet here. I want a subnet here. And these two subnets only talk these protocols from these entities. Boom, it's done. And there you have your network restrictions. Do it. Takes I'll take it a step further and say that after you figure out the way to do it manually, codify those configurations so that you don't get any infrastructure drift later. Because that's another area that is so common in our industry. Cloud-based configurations and other cloud issues is a hot topic. Again, another can of worms, but this is why we have so much work to do in our industry. But uh, being able to put your policies in, in code, right? And, and that way everyone has a clear understanding of a source of truth. Whether you're in Amazon's AWS, Google's GCP, or Microsoft Azure, as long as it's all codified, the, the end destination doesn't really matter, but the principles are there. And it's applicable to any one of them, which is why the na the specific name of the service doesn't really matter. It's more so the the capability that it provides and how you can use it within your organization. Perfect. And so if we we think about lateral movement, right? And we're saying we're gonna lock down all of our all of our deployed applications, they can only talk to each other in this way. Um you think about lateral movement, how do security teams and engineering teams work together to figure out how things are communicating in your experience. Is there, are there specific automated ways that people use or is it a lot of manual, you know, manual drawings? Uh, Brooke, I know you've done a lot of threat modeling, so you have a lot of experience in this world. Um, it's amazing how, how inaccurate the diagrams are. Over time, drift, Amanda said it, drift. And drift happens and ha people have ideas and they throw up another service and when it's really easy to throw up yet another service and have things talk, you end up with these meshes, service meshes. Um, and then somewhere along the line, someone says, oh, we should use a service bus instead of having everything spaghetti talking to each other. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Um, I think that there is a lot of been a lot of movement in this area, really interestingly. So I'm going to preface this with the fact that I'm pretty jaded unfortunately. Over the years, I have been promised that through network and OS observability, this problem would be solved multiple times by multiple vendors. And not one of these things has worked to actually do what I need it to do. Uh, so I'm really jaded and I'm sorry to all the vendors who have great ideas. Doesn't secure everything? But 
Well, there's that too. That's a different problem. I got a whole slide de dedicated to those statements. Close all your security gaps. Let's not go down that rabbit hole because I could go on for way too long. Um, but nevertheless, I'm kind of jaded. On the other hand, uh, I know that both, you know, the, and I don't want this to be a commercial, by the way, there are other clouds than the three we've been mentioning and they have interesting services mm -hmm. too. So let's not make this a, a Microsoft, Google, and Amazon commercial. I don't want to do that. Uh, I, I remain um, always vendor neutral. Show me the best. I'm interested in it. Um, show me what you can do. At other hand, I work with those three clouds a lot, so I know more about them. Um, I know some about some others, but, but not nearly as much. So I use them as examples, not this is no commercial for them. I want to be really clear. Uh, but nevertheless... I know that there are tools on some of these platforms that will map the interactions of what they're doing. There's a new company, I shall remain nameless because no adverts, um, that's actually looking at code <laughs> and doing some mapping. I find that really interesting, really necessary. One of the biggest problems there are, there are a bunch of threat modeling challenges that are really widespread. And I don't want to go all into all of them, but the very first one is how expensive it is to do discovery to actually find out what's actually there and how it works. This is a big problem. And it can take me for a simple application, cloud application, three days of meetings with people to figure it out. Um, and that's a lot. That's very expensive for companies. So having something that at least maps can cut that conversation a lot shorter. Unfortunately, some of the mapping says things like it's HTTPS between these two entities, and that's not deep enough for what we need. We need to know, oh, we're exchanging payments or we're exchanging people or we're exchanging healthcare or whatever the, the right stuff is to know what the data are. But we, you know, that's not enough just to know that it's TCP IP. So what? Of course, it's TCP/IP. What the heck else would it be? Um, that that battle was won long, you know, twenty years ago. Um, remember, I'm a survivor of the network wars of the '80s and '90s. Um, so, uh, yeah, okay, boomer, shut up. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, mapping is important and is really critical. And then there's some extra other tools, like um, there's a tool that you can, you know, there's a bunch of tools that'll just go to the APIs and say, who's talking to who? They're kind of insufficient. Again, they're not enough, but at least it's a start so we know what's happening. And some of the clouds have native things. And then there are other things that you can run and purchase and, and do. So, so this area is both rife, I think, for evolution and also extremely necessary to cut the cost down of understanding where our defensive depth should be and what are the interactions so we can think about lateral movement. I mean, how do you know how, how to lock down everything if you don't know who's talking to whom? My original statement before was presuming you actually knew who was talking to whom and why. Yeah. So Brooke, I want to, you mentioned, you know, three days of meetings. Who are you meeting with? 
what it, what does it take to gain the visibility? You know, to, um, who do you, whose input do you need to feel confident that you understand how a system works? Well, I can only go with the information I have. So that's first. And so the threat model may be compromised because of that. It's important to realize that. But I mean, I like to meet with, my favorite is getting most of the people in the room for any particular threat modeling target, including junior people, product managers, I mean, people who normally would not be there. But meeting with the the lead architect is in, in a lot of ways the worst way to do this because what they drew and what they understood to be done, I can't tell you. It's a joke among me and other people who threat model a lot. It's a running joke that you're sitting there and the one of the lead developers raises their hand and says, but that's not how we implemented it. And one of the reasons we get everybody together is so that that will happen so that the people who are actually working on it from various different views actually do end up understanding what was intended and what has actually been built. This is really an interesting thing, and it's our running joke. Believe me, Isar Tarandash and Chris Romeo and I and and others like those, you know, and Adam Showstack, we laugh about this behind our threat modeling clients back. I shouldn't say that, but it's actually true. Um, not laughing at people, but it's just a common occurrence that, that one of the great things yeah. about getting people together is understanding right? What are we working on to use Adam's words? Um, but nevertheless, I like to go to the, to the leaders, get their view. Then I talk to other people. Maybe it's only leaders in the dev teams, if there are many teams involved or several teams, but I like to talk to people on the ground too, because I have to know the leaders might say, yes, every line of code is, is run through a static analyzer. And then you you got to go talk to people without those leaders in the room and without any managers in the room and talk to them. And they say, oh, no, yeah, we had so much trouble with our analyzer that we we just we, we make them happy by running it. But we actually don't look at the results because it's so noisy and horrible. And we don't want to deal with it. You know, you want to find that stuff out because it's part of the threat model. So I talked to. I guess uh, maybe it's just like, yeah, maybe I'm just a suspicious, nasty person, um, probably. But, you know, I'm talking to the people and then I talk to the operations people. How do you do this if there are operations people? And how do you view? How does stuff come down? The Who runs the build and deploy pipeline? How are you working it? You know, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of people and I talk to the managers. So, yeah, it's a it's a really broad view. On the other hand, it's really fun to get everybody in the room and watch it go in real time. On the other hand, and this is this is embarrassing, one time I learned to do this over the years, and one time at one of our dev centers, um, a different company that I work for now, but um, I, around the world, I'm, I'm in another country and another place, and there were two lead architects, both very brilliant, who for some probably reasons that had nothing to do with what was going on, fought for 45 minutes over something. And I should have facilitated that to say, no, we're not going to have this argument. But I, I literally sat there wondering, how do I stop this? They're talking about what we're talking about. And they kept arguing. They wasted everyone's time for 45 minutes. So you have to be kind of a facilitator and, and be a little strong sometimes and say, wait a minute. 
I don't know what this is about, but this isn't moving us forward, which I didn't do. And I am incredibly embarrassed to this day that I wasted a whole bunch of other people's time letting these two people, you know, duke it out over probably, you know, something that happened between their families or something. I don't know what their problem was, but it never came out. But I, I yeah. eventually stopped it. But so, you have to be a little strong, too. You bring us a, a good manage. a good point. Oh, go ahead. I was, was going to say you have to manage the people side as well as the technical side of everything. And I'm, I'm going to toss it to Amanda because I think she's got something good to say right here. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go with that, Jacob, where um, I, I think a, a big component of, of zero trust at the end of the day is not so much your technology, just that your process. It's your people. Those are the folks that we're really working with the most to get them to understand the the who, the how, the what, but most importantly, the why, right? Like, why are we even talking at this 45-minute meeting, right? Like, those are some of the questions that we have to ask as the facilitator, as the mediator, to bridge that gap of, of uh, understanding so that we can all, like, make a decision on how to best protect the service going forward. And and that balance of of people versus process and technologies is hard because people just want the right answer. They want, give me the fastest win today. Unfortunately, that's not how security works sometimes. You have to learn the people, learn what they're doing, learn what they actually ended up doing, and figure out how to put these security controls in place so that you're not slowing people down when you are at this design point in time of the life cycle versus building it or finding issues later out in, in production. Um, I really want to stress the the people part of of this this whole concept because it, it is a shift in understanding of how to put these defense in depth measures in place and gradually work towards that backlog of security initiatives that I'm sure every organization is working towards. the The target for security is always moving, so the threat today is going to very, look very different from tomorrow, and so. The threat modeling conversation, for example, I've I've been keeping up on, on the industry of like where it's going. And to your point, Brooke, it's it's difficult to have a continuous framework reference of the intended reference architecture for the application. But what the architects say versus what actually gets implemented, sometimes there's an even a disconnect between that own team. And so that's the level of information that we have to work with. And as security practitioners, we have to be the voice of reason within these conversations and say, hey, wait a minute. I, I heard what you wanted to build. Here's what I'm seeing you build. Now what happens? And are we secure along the way? Can I so tell a little Can I story? propose a hypothetical? Well, well, can I tell a little story? And this is very quick. Um, I'm I'm reviewing a threat yes. model. And of okay. course, I'm, I'm at a dev center. Again, this is global. I'm in another, another country. And these folks speak a different language natively, but thankfully they were speaking in English because my command of that language is poor at best. Um, and uh, we were looking at this threat model and it was really complete. So it was doing a review and also, you know, here's our threat modeling process, Brooke, as the, as the, as the leader, you know, is it good enough? Blah, blah, blah. Brilliant, brilliant practitioner leader there, security leader who I, who I, I dearly love, um, was leading the thing. And a very junior person raises their hand and says, um, but in the base operating system, did we leave the default password for the SSH in place? Because for testing, we were using it. 
Oh yeah. So sometimes even the most, the, you know, the leaders don't have a, the full grasp and you can miss, fret modeling is really hard because you can miss really obvious things because you're d drilling down in this one possible attack that requires really thinking through deeply and it's, it's difficult to manage, but it could be dreadful and you miss the, you know, the open SSH port with the default password in the underlying operating system, which is, you know, thankfully we grabbed it and we closed that problem before it went live. They were just about ready to go live. So. That example reminds me of that picture where it's it's someone's donned in a full suit of armor, right? But then there's the arrow in the in the face, right? <laughs> Just that one little opening could could uh, leave you open to so many other issues that uh, if if that one voice didn't speak up, could have impacted things later down the line. And I think that really stresses the point of of diversity and inclusion in these conversations, right? I think one of the most important things of this people part of the conversation is having these different viewpoints and perceptions of software development. And so that's why I'm, I'm loving these conversations. I think more people are starting to talk about it and more people are coming to the table with their ideas of, oh, wait a minute, I think we're insecure here. And having a safe space to openly discuss that really changes the game, in my opinion. Yeah, getting a culture of people being, it's okay to admit that you you did something wrong or, you know, to just question everything. It's a part of zero trust, right? It's having zero trust in your own design and implementation and allowing other people to pitch into the conversation. So, it, you know, it, it's just another part of the people aspect of, of getting these different perspectives and getting the entire team on the same page of, hey, we're all in this together and we're trying to build this very complicated, very confusing thing and make it run without being exploited. Brooke, do you want to uh, comment on the diversity inclusion piece before I propose my hypothetical? Uh, no, Amanda said it. I, I'm so keen. I, I guess I will say, you know, there's a lot of social science studies that prove diverse teams that respect each other's input outperform the smartest, and I'm going to say it, smartest guys in the room. I'm just going to use that term because we we have, you know, that kind of thinking sometimes in, in tech. Um, unfortunately, I don't know a woman engineer who has not suffered um, at the hands of guys who think that women can't code, which is absurd. Um, so I'll just throw that in there. That, that statement alone, and I know a lot of great women engineers, is horrifying. But, uh, you know, I'll just kind of throw that in there and get my little political moment here. But um, there's a lot of social science that proves this beyond a shadow of a doubt. So this isn't just, you know, woo or feel good or politics or anything else. We're better when we have lots of different thinking styles and lots of different perspectives and lots of different ways of going about a problem, we come up with better solutions consistently and provably. So it's, it's, it's just good business to, to, to really build teams that have, that allow for diversity and diverse thinking, right? 
And I'll, I'll say one other thing, and this is a little political and I'm sorry for it, but I have never found that anyone's gender or preferences or uh, gender needs or the shade of their skin or where they came from had much real influence on whether they were good at their job or not. So, you know, if those are your hangups, learn to get rid of them because they don't, I, I, I work with people all over the world for decades. I just don't see it, that it has anything to do with how we work together, any of that stuff, or what religion they have, or what they believe, or any of that stuff. It's about doing the work and really paying attention to each other. So I'll just give you that little bit of a commercial for diversity. Yeah, beautifully said, Brooke. And I I know this is kind of a pivot. It's a really important conversation. I think that's probably worth an entire podcast episode of its own. Uh, but I want to I want to circle back to how Amanda started, which was you were talking about getting all of these tools implemented into the pipeline. And so this hypothetical I'd love to hear from you is let's say you had unconstrained budget, you had all of the buy in and everyone was working together and you have this team that's all committed. What what would your tool stack or process stack look like? How would you ensure zero? Like what would an ideal stack of everything you own to prove that you have a zero trust compliant software system look like? That is a great question. Uh, there are so many things that you could put into place to build a zero trust program or framework or a culture of, of you know, never trusting and always verifying. And so it would be to starts uh, from idea to production and putting your kind of like your, your security hat on at the the design phase, doing these threat models, opening up the conversations for discussions on what could be a potential threat and have we mitigated them. Having, and at that point of time, having a set of, you know, secure development practices, here are all the input types you should have. Make sure you sanitize, you know, all, all of the, the, the stuff that you, you can kind of checklist off before a security scanner will detect all of that stuff. Then let's say you write the code, but now you need tools to verify that you wrote your, your code as securely as possible. So you're going to have your static code analysis, your open source, like third-party libraries. You got to scan your, your container images at, at this point of time in the development. We haven't gotten to running, but... You know, at this build time, right, where everything's kind of static still, you really want, just want to do a sanity check of your code. Could there be any potential issues now while I'm writing the code that I could find and fix before they're up and running later and could be exploitable? So uh, we've talked about static code, your third-party libraries, your containers. Don't forget your APIs. That's a really big one. Um, we could dedicate a whole topic to, to just APIs and, and how the digital transformation of everything is going to be API driven in the future. Um, so really making sure you, you got a good handle on your APIs is, is super critical because that is probably one of the most common attack vectors going forward for as long as I can succeed till we get past APIs, which I don't think will be the case. Uh, but uh, after your APIs and just making sure you have your, uh, your web and mobile scanners as well too, right? So again, more sanity checks when you have your components running and seeing if there's any potential issues there. So I'm kind of going through the motions of all of these different like application security capabilities. Again, many tools on, on the market for it. You really have to pick 
uh, what's best for your people and the processes that you need to have. And, and then you pick your tool as, as a way to fulfill your goals and, and requirements. Um, but it really has to come from a solid understanding of what those requirements are. So, you know, once, once you get your automated security tests in place now, now you need to actually um, test the quality of it, right? It is the way the application running um, vulnerable for any malware or any other like injection runs that could impact the application? Have I hardened it off from, you know, the functionality level to app to app to application to, to network or even infrastructure, right? Like how are those channels of communications being handled as well? You, you gotta make sure you have your appropriate authorization and authentication controls in place. Uh, making sure your data is encrypted and protected at, uh, you know, transit and in storage, putting those, uh, and then, and then I think lastly, in, in runtime, how are you observing the application when it's running? How are you monitoring the container or the infrastructure for any uh, potential exploits as well? And so those capabilities are kind of like runtime monitoring, also behavioral analytics, right? Do I have a baseline profile of how my application is supposed to run, as well as an identification of how the users are supposed to interact with it? And then if I do find anything, do I have a mechanism to respond and contain the, the issue so that, again, the blast radius is contained? I'm probably missing a plethora of other security capabilities in that. Brooke, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on, on what, what we could do to expand on that. You just- And real yeah. quick, Brooke, oh, go. we are starting to run low on time. So I'm gonna say, if, if you don't mind just keeping this one short, that would be great. All right, yes, I was gonna say, Amanda just ran through the industry consensus soft uh, security development lifecycle or security software development lifecycle, um, depending upon which, which acronym you want to use. You just did it. That's runtime. The one thing I would add is there are also, you know, controls of who can, who can use or change what. So there's some people controls that go in there um, just to add that one thing and that's it. That's basically the SDL. In fact, you just basically in in five minutes ran through you know a couple of my books. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. And here's, here's a crash course on on secure development practices. Um, and again, obviously, we've we covered on a bunch of other things earlier on too. One quick bit tidbit is uh, you know anything that you could codify put into code, the better because then you have really strip like strides towards that immutable infrastructure and deployment of, of your your services so the less things that could change what's it's running great that's my pitch beautifully spoken amanda an amazing summary and since we are starting to run low on time i want to open the floor up and give you both the opportunity to make a call to action amanda is there anything you want to ask of the audience embrace chaos I'd have to say the, the, the world is always changing and just be open and mindful to uh, sort of where we're at today, where we all want to go in the future tomorrow and pay attention to my messaging of we, right? Like we're, we're all in this together and the AppSec space can be tough at times, but there's a whole community out there of people uh, such as ourselves here on this call, which I'm thrilled to be here for. Um, who are thinking about these things, are vocalizing it, and I think we're making a huge positive impact for our for future generations to come. 
Perfect. And Brooke? Yeah, we need a movement. We need a global movement. I will say, remember that all software is going to break, including all your security software, and it's imperfect. And so bearing that in mind really is a foundation for my practice because I'm not going to assume that firewall is just doing its thing. I'm going to assume it's doing its thing, you know, imperfectly and that it will break. And then I'm going to back that up. So remembering to be redundant, lots of redundancy, lots of overlap, lots of overlap in tools and processes and in all these things that really, really helps because counting on one thing, you're going to be in trouble eventually. I'm sorry, you are. And so, you know, that's the one thing I would add. I love what you said, Amanda. I just love it. We need a movement and, and we need everybody because remember, many, probably millions of the programmers of planet Earth are not listening to this podcast and they're not working in AppSec programs run by brilliant people like Amanda and Jacob. And, you know, how do we get to them? How do we include everyone who writes software so we can make it a lot harder to misuse our software and to protect people. So embrace chaos and try to get the whole world on the zero trust movement. I love it. Beautiful. Well, Amanda, Brooke, thank you both so much for joining today. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you both. Thank you for having us. This was great. So appreciate the chance to talk about this and so appreciate the chance to hang with you a little bit and talk AppSec, Amanda and Jacob. Um, we, we, you know, in other places where we meet, we don't get these nice dialogues and, and, and a chance to play off of each other. So they greatly appreciate the opportunity. No, this was, this was awesome. And I'm, I'm so glad that we got to do this. Um, so it's, it feels good, and I, I feel like we, we talked about a lot of great things that when I heard about Zero Trust, and specifically from applications, it was a little bit more of the, the like traditional mindset of like, oh, Microsoft 365 and Salesforce. It's like there's so much more to the application domain itself that we, we just had a whole podcast on it, right? We could keep going on all the different pieces that we mentioned in it too. And so I'm just thrilled that we got to talk about it, and I, I hope to see more of this. Yeah, I want to second everything you just said. Amazing. Well, thank you again, and I hope you both have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Champions of Security. Be sure to come back next week. We're going to have another exciting guest on this very streaming platform. See you there.